0: days of a rather syrupy or bubblegummy superficial kind of homily or meditation are gone by necessity. The Church of Jesus Christ could get away with that a few decades ago. I'm still not saying that was the best or the ideal. But it could get away with it because of where our culture in general was at. There was an overall understanding, there was an overall commitment, whether people even knew where it was from or not, of a, biblical, a biblically informed Judeo-Christian ethic that infected and impacted every aspect of life. Obviously, that is no longer the situation. We are a post-Christian culture. And if you want to know what that means or what that's like a few more years down the road, just look at Europe. They were there quite a while ago. And so I take God's word and I take a book and make every effort to rigorously exegete it, allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's not always easy. It's not always clear or certain. But I try to be faithful to tell you when I am basically speculating or that it's reasonable but not necessarily true. But the days of easy syrupy, namby-pamby homily meditations... Are behind us. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 8, jumping right in to verse 22. All my messages take up where we left off the previous week, and you can get all those messages online at our website. They came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter the village. We're going to camp here for a while. What do we make of the fact that Jesus performs this healing in a stepwise manner? It's rather unique. Is it even noteworthy? Or is it the kind of thing that guys like me like to take and make something out of it when really there's maybe not much there? Does Mark write it just to expand his words like, I don't know about you, but like I used to do in grammar school when we would have a theme to write? And it had to be like three pages. And I had one page of material. And so you do the double space, you know. You put the blank page in between. Like the teacher's not going to get it. Yeah. Can we ignore the fact that this was a two-step healing? Or is it a big deal? Well, that remains to be seen. But there are... Quite a number of people, of Christians, who make a big deal out of it, so we need to talk about it. The people who tend to make something out of this like to note that the blind man didn't come on his own. And if he didn't come on his own, so what? Did the blind man come on his own? Well, why even ask the question? It is because if he was brought to Jesus, rather than coming on his own, this is the way the thinking goes, it could mean that the man came reluctantly, really more at the insistence of the others who brought him than of his own volition. Which, if that's true, it could indicate something about the condition of the blind man's faith. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase in Christendom of the name it, claim it, mentality it's like get a a promise out of scripture and and of course all the promises in scripture especially if they're ripped out of context are meant for today to every christian today and all you have to do is name that promise and then claim it and then by golly if gritting your teeth and it takes years you name it and you claim it and you keep naming it and you keep claiming it until god finally buckles and gives you whatever that promise is that you're clinging to that's name it claim it it's widespread It's part and parcel, although somewhat obscured, in the prosperity gospel of today, which is taking the world, the world by storm. Well, the name it, claim it types contend that a lack of healing is always, and this is in the extreme, admittedly, but it's not at all atypical that a lack of healing in whatever your particular situation happens to be is due to a lack of faith. I give many examples of that in my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity. Well, if the man was brought to Jesus rather than coming on his own, this two-step healing can be much more easily explained. If the blind man was brought because he didn't want to come, then the explanation goes, the first step in the miracle was to show the man lacking faith that Jesus can, in fact, heal. It was kind of a, it was kind of a faith warm-up for the man. Jesus spits on his eyes, and Jesus asks, Do you see anything? It didn't dawn on me the first many times that I was thinking through this, but what an odd question for the Savior of mankind, for the Creator, for God incarnate to ask. I don't recall him asking the deaf man, can you hear me now? (laughs) So it does seem strange. I mean, he had already done this miracle. He'd already done many other miracles. So why does Jesus ask? Maybe Jesus was uncertain of the outcome. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe Jesus asked sheepishly, Do you see anything? Did it work? The man replies, I can see men walking around as trees. Again according to the name and claim at the lack of faith model when the blind man does begin to see something although not yet clearly his faith though now being able to see anything at all is emboldened and now he has sufficient faith to be healed completely and hence step 2 which yields now 2020 vision I was curious and I wanted to see how popular a view this might be I already knew, but I just wanted to go online and check out all sorts of different sources just to see what people say about it. And to the answer, they were all grounded in the singular fact that this man did not come come on his own, but he had been brought by others. And then some added that the prayer for healing also came from those who brought him. Didn't even come from the request of the blind man himself. So, this again seems to buttress the lack of faith explanation for this two step or two stage miracle. But if we do something crazy here and we allow, sit down, the scripture to interpret the scripture, all we need to do is to go back one chapter, one chapter, to another healing situation where we read of another man who was also brought to Jesus and I'm referring in chapter seven to the deaf mute now the deaf mute could see and yet he was brought by others furthermore that man one chapter earlier having a speech impediment but he still nevertheless he could speak we're told that in the text Yet, even in his situation, it was those who brought him who asked Jesus to lay hands on him. He didn't ask for himself either, and yet he was healed in one step. So what might this indicate? Well, the fact that this blind man now in chapter 8 was brought and others asked for prayer from him may have seemed reasonable when taken in isolation. It's not compelling and it doesn't tell us anything about either man's faith. Not the man in chapter 7 nor the man now born blind in chapter 8. Or rather, he wasn't born blind necessarily, but blind. Which means now we are back to where we started. <laughs> Isn't this fun? So, why a two step healing? Well, the late, great, long departed this world theologian, John Calvin, said that it was Jesus merely showing his sovereignty over the situation and that he heals how he wants, not by a formula. And candidly, that's as good an answer as any, I guess. So why the time spent on this to end up right back where we started? Well... For one thing, the moral of the story here is that we don't want to grab onto something in Scripture just because it happens to support or undergird or buttress our personal opinion of something in the Scriptures. We don't want to grab onto something simply because it seems favorable to our particular view of what is a bigger issue and then force something that seems plausible developing an entire theological system from it, like the name-it-claim-it variety of faith healing. That, by the way, is the way cults begin. This is the way errant teachings of the Bible gain traction over time, seeming to sound biblical. And then before you know it, people are absolutely ready to to die on that hill because it is so biblical. In my earlier days, just after seminary, that would be the mid-80s, I was searching out this particular aspect of, of what is called the charismatic movement. That is the the movement where they still believe in all the functioning uh, in the gifts of the Spirit that occurred in the New Testament, etc., etc. But in particular, I was focused in on this whole idea of healing and faith healing in particular. I attended several conferences on the ministry of healing put on by Vineyard Ministries International, the founder of whom was John Wimber. Wimber himself seemed to honestly have a pretty good grasp of the matter, and a balanced grasp of the matter, which is why I was attracted to that particular movement. But as time went on, John Wimber died of cancer. Later developments in the Vineyard movement revealed that not everyone down the organizational ladder at VMI had the same balanced grasp. It was out of the vineyard that the Toronto movement began, the airport vineyard in Toronto, if you're familiar at all with the Toronto movement. And it became so wild and bizarre and crazy and non-biblical that the vineyard themselves even severed that church from being a part of them. One of the issues tackled at the seminars was trying to explain biblically why some people are healed instantly, while many more are healed gradually, or not at all. If my memory serves me correctly, this passage was cited trying to connect this man's lack of faith with the delayed nature of the healing, as I've kind of said. At that time, again, it seemed plausible. But as I grew in the Lord and the knowledge of his word, it forced bigger issues to the surface. And while we do see a connection, it's undeniable, there is a connection in the Scriptures between one's faith and God's willingness to move. But making a miracle contingent on the recipient's amount of faith started to grow problematic and inconsistent. For example, just two picked rather randomly, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus chides the disciples for being men of little faith. In fact, not on one occasion, but on four different occasions. Nevertheless, miracles are performed. On the other hand, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus commends the centurion, not for his lack of faith, but for his tremendous faith. And you know the outcome of that story. Jesus heals his servant from afar. doesn't even go to his servant. He just heals him on the spot. And so again, while there is a connection between personal faith and certain aspects of healing, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 4 makes it very clear that God heals according as he chooses. So on this point, I have to side with John Calvin. And boy, I'm sure he is so pleased to hear that. (laughs) Oh, Bill Kripe agrees with me. Whoa, I was sweating that one out here for centuries. But there's a more important question, and that is why, why is this passage with these details here now at this point in Mark's Gospel? First, let's not lose the context of the previous pericope. You knew I'd get it in there. Last time we were together, the disciples were in a boat, and they were doing face palms over the fact that they had forgotten to resupply the galley. They didn't take any food along. And Jesus, aware of this, this is old material, verses 17 and 18, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see yet? Or do you not understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes? Now this is right before the passage we're on today. Do you have eyes yet do not see? Do you have ears yet do not hear? And do you not remember? This is a continuously repeated theme in the book of Mark concerning the disciples. That's important. This is how we let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. So, possibly, remembering the previous context, Jesus uses this two step healing to illustrate nothing about healing as much as the gradual increasing acuity in one's ability to see and that seeing with clarity only comes by the Lord's initiative. Something for which the disciples were needing constant reminder. That's a reasonable explanation. That doesn't mean that it's true just want to be up front with you. So let's keep digging. In this passage, it says that Jesus removes the blind man now from the hubbub of all the crowds, and he takes him out of the village. Now, why did he do that? Was this to diminish witnesses? It's very possible, for which there are compelling reasons to think that that might very well be the case. Or is it to have a more intimate setting with the man that he is about to heal? Maybe. Or is it to have a more intimate setting with the disciples? Using the man's healing to illustrate what I just said about seeing and seeing clearly. At any rate, the man ends up being able to see clearly. Jesus sends him home telling him not to go back through the village. Okay. Well, I haven't really answered the question. I posed at the outset, should it be a big deal? And I believe that it should, because among other things, it helps us with the rest of this passage, which is the real issue, which does, again, then, make it a big deal, as I trust we will see. Verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them who do people say that I am? Now (laughs) this question requires astute and acute spiritual vision. Jesus knows this and so he begins in what I'm going to call safe mode, okay? Those of you who are, I mean, if I'm familiar with safe mode in a computer context, probably most of you are. Maybe not everybody, all right? So I think about my computer coming on, and there it is, safe mode, which note, by the way, whenever I see safe mode popping up on my computer, I feel anything but safe. Hey, those of you understand, you're going, yeah, got it, understand. It usually means, now this is in my absolute, almost total ignorance of IT, that you may be safe for the moment, but there is trouble brewing. Jesus asks, hey guys, who do people say that I am? <sighs> wow. And for a minute, I thought Jesus might start grilling us. But the question, as Jesus asks it, you see, is impersonal in nature. It protects the disciples from any kind of cost. Meaning, there's no risk. There's no investment in whatever answer they give. There's no possible embarrassment. There is no right or wrong answer. They have no stake in whatever they say right now. It's the difference between someone asking you, put yourself in any context you want, and they ask you, well, what do folks that you know think about Donald Trump? Oh, man, if I got. <laughs> I can tell you what people think about Donald Trump. <laughs> Okay, but that's an entirely different question than, what do you think about Donald Trump? You getting the picture? Yeah. Who do people say that I am? And Jesus asks the question of all questions. It is the question that separates the eternally damned from the eternally redeemed there is no greater question none to be asked there is none remember what i am about to say when you are speaking to someone about all things religious and you find that you're getting buried amongst the rabbit trails of discussion and diversions of spirituality and religion. Who does everyone else say that I am? The answer, without reservation, comes from their lips. There's no, again, personal risk in the answer. It's a safe question to answer Put this way, and so they respond in verse 28. They told him, saying, Oh, well, Jesus, some people, I I know people who think you're John the Baptist. (laughs) Oh, I know this guy, and he thinks you're Elijah who's come back. Oh, no, no, he's any one of the other prophets. I think he's Isaiah or maybe Ezekiel. He's come back from the dead. (laughs) It's safe. There's no risk. And so they answer. But a person asking directly an important question like this can get you to the bottom of dodges and diversions, bringing clarity very quickly. And by the way, I used this just in the last eight or nine days in conversation with an individual. And I was getting buried in all kinds of spirituality. Spirituality. And I finally just said, okay, so who is Jesus to you? It's clarifying. As we proceed, remember again that we do not have everything that has transpired here, meaning that the conversation that Mark records, we don't know what actually transpired conversationally between verses 28 and verses 29. There may have been a half hour of discussion between those two verses, but God superintending the Scriptures puts down just the way He things want to flow, where they occur, and what we need to hear. So at any rate, Jesus masterfully gets the disciples talking, which hopefully lowers their reluctance to now answer at a different level. This is what I've been driving at. At a personal level. And then Jesus drops the salvation bomb. And Jesus, verse 29, the first part, continued by questioning them. But... Who do you say that I am? And this is just my imagination here. But I see them suddenly going from, Oh yeah, so-and-so says this, and I know these guys are saying this and everything else, but who do you say that I am? Whew, it's getting late. All of a sudden eyes go to the ground except for One except for Peter. And the Word makes note of that for us. Remember before it was a no-risk question about they and them and those people. But now the Master, the Creator, God in human form puts it to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, (laughs) God love him, who is never shy about answering first and thinking later, answers and says to him, you are the Christ. And yeah, perhaps there was a collective sigh of relief amongst the others. Thank you, Peter. But then we go to gospel writer Matthew who adds in this exact same conversation what Mark, he adds to what Mark writes with Peter saying you are the Christ the son of the living God now please pay close attention especially if you were brought up in a tradition of papal succession I mean no disrespect just linguistic and theological accuracy accuracy Jesus said to him, this is still in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are you. Remember who said it? Peter said it. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, this is A humongous deal. Think back to what I said last week and what I've said for several weeks at various times about God's sovereignty in the call of men and women to himself throughout the ages. John records it in chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Remember one of faith's plumb lines? The plumb lines are little soundbite snippets of those things which have made faith what it is, which is what we are committed to, and which over the decades have not changed. Number four says, we try to see where God is at work and then join him. Well, guess what? Henry Blackaby gets credit for that idea, but Jesus practices the same thing. He tells us so in John. Chapter 5, verse 19. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father already doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And God is at work in Peter for His grand purposes. And Jesus obviously is completely in tune with the Father's purposes. What follows in Matthew's account, in the rest of verse 16. I wouldn't expect you to remember, so I will tell you. What follows in what I've just been reading from Matthew is, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then our translations read, I also say to you that you are, our translations say Peter, the word is Petros, which is rock. It's the word for rock. I also say to you that you are Peter. Wait a minute. He said, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. But I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What is this rock to which Jesus is alluding? If you were raised in the tradition of papal succession, you were taught that it is the Apostle Peter. It isn't the Apostle. It isn't Peter, the man with that name. His name is Simon Barjona. Let's read the passage carefully. It's right there. Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The very next statement and in the very same breath, Jesus says, And I also say to you that because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, you are a Petros, It's the indefinite article there, which means there is no article there in the Koine Greek, which means it is to be translated what is called indefinitely grammatically, meaning the difference between a rock and the rock. I'm not pulling that out of the hair. That is grammar in the Greek. You are a Petros, a small r rock, and upon this, the capital R rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. If the rock is in fact Peter the man, papal succession demands it doesn't even make, that papal succession demands it doesn't even make sense grammatically. I will build my church, not on a man, or a succession of men who have been elected by other men in what is called the College of Cardinals, but on the unsinkable, hear this well. But I will build my church on this. This is the unsinkable, unwavering, solid rock, which is not a man, but it is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, certain, unwavering, immovable revelation of God, namely, the Word become flesh and dwelt among us. But wait, there's more. Let's continue the passage. Let's go back to Mark now, chapter 8. The healing is done. And Jesus warns them to tell no one about him. Again, this has been a recurring theme nearly every time Jesus works a miracle. Why? I repeat it again and again because Mark repeats it again and again. It is because Jesus' mission was not to come as the magic genie granting everyone's desires, which is why the rest of the verse says, verse 31a, and Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And that the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus gives the disciples a very hard to hear lesson in the life about the Savior of mankind. It wasn't going to end well for the master and their leader. And the reason I word it that way is because we cannot appreciate the depths to which this cuts to the core of their very hope and their faith in the coming Redeemer, their Messiah, Yeshua. It flies in the face of everything the Jews understood about the Savior who was promised. Verse 32, And Jesus was stating the matter plainly. (laughs) Again, what another strange little inspired insertion. Unlike previously in Mark, there were no divinely blinded eyes at this point. There was no divine spiritual deafness at this point. There was no divinely hardened hearts, no parables, no metaphors by which the disciples might miss what Jesus is saying. Who do you say that I am? And I assure you that (laughs) at least the twelve and probably others were thinking, well, I can tell you I can tell you who we don't need. We don't need another loser. We don't need another poser. Remember, there were false messiahs all over the place at the time. We don't want another well-meaning, well-intentioned prophet, but who is powerless to destroy our enemies. And in the context, it was not Satan. It was Rome. But none of them would dare... None of them would dare say anything. Who do you say that I am? Except one. Now please note the proximity of what is coming next. It is an epic fail of Peter. The small R rock. Back to back. With the epic success of Of Peter, the small r rock. And Peter took Jesus aside. (laughs) Remember, he just got done saying, here's what's going to happen. Everybody of any importance, all the theologians, they're going to go against me. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be executed. And Peter says, Jesus, can I have a word for a minute? And he takes them out of earshot. I trust Peter was thinking perhaps from the boys. And Peter began to rebuke. (laughs) I said, he loves to speak first and think later. He begins to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus turning around, remember? Jesus, come here, away from the guys. Peter's rebuking Jesus and Jesus is going, The the boys are, uh, your posse is all listening. They're all hearing all of this. And seeing that, Jesus rebuked Peter, the small r, rock. Talk about a strong rebuke as well. Because the word you see used for Peter's protest in the sa- is the same word used by Jesus silencing the demons earlier in this gospel. And as quickly as Peter, the small r rock, uses the word, Jesus turns it right back on him, addressing not Peter, the small r rock, but Satan. I would love to have seen Peter's face. Jesus, I, I I got a little wisdom. Come here. Come here. I got to talk to you. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, whoa. Peter uh, and Jesus said, again, to the small r rock, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, making sure everybody's hearing it, but on man's and Peter, the small R rock on which the Lord will build his church is trying to dissuade Jesus, the rock from building his church by trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. If Peter, the man is indeed the rock on which the church was built. Peter, the small rock, is actually ordering the Savior not to carry out the Father's mission to save mankind. And who did the same? Who did the exact same thing at the very inauguration of Jesus' public ministry but Satan? Meeting Jesus in the wilderness. That was the point of the three temptations. They were to make Jesus take one of his three offers or all three of his three offers that he gives to him in order to abandon his scheme of defeating the enemy of mankind by abandoning the idea that God dying for the sins of you and me thus liberating us from the clutches of Satan once for all time. And Peter, and Peter, it comes from the mouth of Peter. You better believe that Jesus rebuked the spirit of Antichrist even if speaking through one of the chosen 12. And Jesus made sure that the others heard it. So wrapping this up, the man whose name is Simon Barjona, nicknamed Peter, is certainly at times a rock, but not the rock. And Peter is so flawed that he is so often out of step with the purposes of heaven as to be working for the devil, even if unwittingly. It is a common tale of woe throughout the history of the Christian church with Christians. Rarely is a church ever split in two because of a truly important theological issue but for some dumb reason of personal preference or my feelings were hurt and I'm going to make everybody pay. Simon Barjona, nicknamed Peter, is not the rock on which Jesus built his church. And Let me say for the record, I love Peter. (laughs) Maybe for all the wrong reasons. Speak first, think later. Soulmates, right, Pete? Hey, yeah, yeah, expected silence on that one. Or at least I'm, no, no, Pastor. I've always loved Peter. Because in Peter I see a man who is out there with good intentions, and yet in his own greatly flawed humanity, he still really does love the Lord. But oh, 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 what a blockhead he can be. Sinners, one and all, saved on bended knee, sinners one and all, saved by grace are we. Peter, you and me. May I have you stand. Lord in heaven, Thank you for putting guys like Peter in the Bible, guys like David in the Bible. Well, actually, pretty much everybody in the Bible, Lord. They did some incredibly powerfully, wonderfully awesome things as you equipped them and empowered them, and they walked in obedience, and they also did things that were stupefyingly sinful, ridiculous, short-sighted, self-centered. And, Lord... Again, it doesn't cause me to click my tongue. Not anymore. I think it did early on. but It causes me to be grateful that I am in good company of fellow sinners who loved you intently, who obeyed you well at times and sinned hugely at other times, and yet are held up as the foundations of the church because you, Lord, have so used flawed and failing and failed people and continue to this day. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Amen.